Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to Business Builder Show, where we bring in champions in their respective industries from all over the planet. And the mission is to inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to talk about the secrets for grant funding, how to raise capital for just causes, and Agatha Wright will tell us how that is done. Now, she received her BA in art history from, from the University of California at Riverside, and then she attended Harvard Business School, the Entrepreneurship Certification Program in 2020. She's the founder of Flux House. Flux House develops impactful collaborations that break down barriers that, that impact historical divested communities and individuals from realizing their full potential, support their creative interests, foster pride and identity and connection to cultural heritage and reverse negative patterns influenced by inequity. Agatha, it's fantastic to have you here. Thank you, Bill. Likewise, I'm so excited to be here with you today. And we're excited to know who do you serve? I serve historically marginalized communities, BIPOC, Latinx, transgendered individuals and groups that have faced inequity in society. I also work with emerging and established nonprofit organizations connecting the two in order to foster the development of emerging initiatives and providing that network support for them to be able to successfully grow and expand. But really, as a whole, Fluxus doesn't discriminate. We really work with a diverse and robust artist, you know, artist roster, as well as collaborating partners. And that has been a fundamental core of the organization to really utilize this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've been doing this for quite some time before DEI became a buzzword and recognizing really that in community, there are so many facets in communities throughout the United States, whether you're living, you know, in the Midwest or you're living in more metropolitan areas, communities encompass a whole array of what the American population actually looks like. And we wanted the organization to really be reflective of what America looks like today. And so there is no discrimination on who we work with or for, although we do place emphasis on these historically divested communities because we understand that in order to combat inequity, we've got to put a focal point on people who have been historically overlooked. And we also find that in these unique voices, it's always a reciprocal exchange between us learning what the community needs are, right, as they evolve and as they develop. But we, we try to take the approach that we're really learning from the people that we're working with. Not only are we mentoring them, but we're listening. We're actively listening to what those needs are as those needs change and shift 
through time. And so it's an ongoing conversation and it's reciprocal and it's continuous. And, and we love that. We really do. We appreciate the fact that we can offer that to those that we work with and that they in exchange do the same for us so that we can better serve them. So I imagine that you've identified some problems that these this community you just described to us has and you solve for them. So give us some examples of the problems they have and how you, or not how yet, but what are they? And then I'll ask you how you solve them. I believe access is a huge barrier to obtaining grant funding for emerging organizations or for artists who have never had exposure to what is expected of them. And I'll have to tell you, Bill, nowadays, in order to submit a compelling and competitive grant application, you need <laughs> to have certain specific skill sets. And so I really, I often have this conversation with my colleagues in terms of access and equity in the grant world itself. You obviously have to have access to internet. You have to have access to, to being able to write grammatically correct applications, right? You have to have access to administrative components. So there's a section in grant applications, what we call support documentation. And so if, if we're dealing with a new organization or we're dealing with an artist who doesn't really have the infrastructure in terms of administrative capabilities. We're, we're dealing with marketing collateral. So now you're looking at having to have photography, having to have videography, everything that can document the work that's being conducted is going to be requested in these grant applications, not to mention you know, sometimes you're asked to provide three-year organizational budget. And if you're in an, a new and emerging community-based organization, these are all assets that you might not have yet. And so I believe that that's a huge barrier for people to even come to the table. And that's where you see that the inequity plays out. So some people don't even come to the table because they feel automatically before they've even started overwhelmed by what it requires to actually submit an application. And so that's something that we really work with our clients to build and to develop so that when they are ready to apply, they are applying according to all of the grant requirements and specifications. Another challenge that I find, um, it's demystifying the different platforms that exist in the grant world. A lot of times I find that folks are shying away from applying to federal awards, which are actually the largest funding pools that exist, just because there are several steps, right? Again, access. You've got to register on SAM.gov, then you have to register on grants.gov, and all of this is an entire process that plays out. And it can be overwhelming to, to clients to just kind of work through all of these different facets, right? But at the same time, what we come in and what we provide is we break these things down into technical and, and 
easily applicable action steps for the organization so that it doesn't seem so overwhelming. And then, you know, once that technical side is done, we walk them through the federal application process, which is quite different from, for example, foundational grant funding. And uh, we just demystify that, you know, federal applications are very matter of fact. <laughs> it's not it's something that, you know, in, in, ter in terms of the style of writing, when you're looking at federal awards, it's really straightforward. And so also coming to a segue on another challenge is understanding what each application and what each platform or what each funding pool requires of you as an applicant. So for example, if you're working with a foundation, you want to make sure that what you're submitting or the project that you're presenting is in alignment with the foundation's own organizational mission statement, right? So that's an art form within itself, sourcing opportunities that are in alignment with both your project and with the donor and the funder. And so these are some of the, the overarching challenges that I feel sometimes hold people back from really aligning with the correct opportunities and then moving forward with all of the different facets that are required of them to submit a successful application. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe it would really be helpful if you could think about a real success story and and kind of walk us through here's the here's the client here's their situation here's what we did one two three four five here's the outcome etc and that would really help people understand what it is that you do help these people out sure so right off the top of my mind evolutionary arts life foundation I have been working on this portfolio since 2019. When we started, just to give you some background on the organization, it is a performing arts organization that focuses on a dual track curriculum for underserved BIPOC and Latinx children in Miami Gardens. Now, Miami Gardens is a historically marginalized community in Miami. And we started out working with a very small group of kids. We really didn't have much funding at the time. There were 42 kids that we were serving, right? And But we knew that in this particular region, there was a great need for support services for the, for the youth that were residing there, which didn't have much because of where that specific geographic region falls in the county. There wasn't that much being, you know, made available to children there, particularly in the arts. And so I would say the very first thing when you're thinking about what you're passionate about, what your cause is, is to do your research. Where are the gaps where are the gaps and how can you fill them, right? And so instead of just kind of shooting in the dark, obviously you'll have, you know, a good idea of, of what it is that you're trying to do, but do your research, look at statistical data. And I would recommend pulling up data from the census. It's all public. You can go and you can and search up, you know, data sets in relationship to a specific region and see where the gaps are. That's a great place to start and, and do your research. From there, I would also say it's important to understand 
the communities and the issues that you are covering. And so connecting with other community members, right? Attending meetings or becoming parts of groups, community groups, right? And even citywide initiatives that are to like toned in to the topic and who are already doing the work because a lot of this work is also creating strategic partnerships. And we'll get into that a little bit later but building those relationships with other community organizations, right? Strategic planning per se. And so we went about it that way. We really connected to the community. We listened to the community, what their needs were. And then we started doing the work, right? And we started off with one summer camp, but we really focused on how could we maximize the summer? How could we maximize the time for these kids and make the greatest impact? Now, this is when you kind of go into, I would say, the more fun part, right, of building curriculum if you're dealing with arts education. And we knew that we wanted these kids to have the very best education and arts education possible. And we didn't want to shortchange them, even though, you know, at the time the organization was still developing. So sourcing the appropriate instructors, providing support services through counseling. I mean, children are going through a lot of mental health issues today. And so when you're looking at how you're developing your program on a day-to-day -day basis, you want to make sure that now that you've got, you know, you've got your mission and your cause, right? And you're excited and you're putting together a team that you put a comprehensive team together that can really serve that community as well as understand the needs of that particular community. And I can't state enough how important it is to have representation. Representation is everything. If you're working with a community that's predominantly Black or African American, representation is essential. You want the youth to see those examples of people that look like them and have experienced some of the things that they have that are succeeding, right? That within itself provides empowerment and enrichment for the kids to really kind of hone in on those specific lessons that they're learning through the curriculum and to see those real world examples of success. I can't stress that enough, representation. And I mean representation across the board from your staff, from your board, from your educators, and from those participating in your programs. Really represent the community. Don't just say you are, but do it. And that means that you're looking at representation as a whole, right? So now we've got our staff and we've, you know, vetted and we have screened the best individuals to participate in the project. Documentation, right? Grants, you know, it's it's a bureaucratic <laughs> industry where you've got to document everything. So I always tell my clients, and this is just very plain, right? If you're saying it, you've got to be able to prove it. It's almost like being somewhat of a lawyer or an investigator, but you're not. But if you're saying it in your narratives, right, that you've done X, Y, and Z, I have served 11 youth from June 6th through August 1st. First, you've got to be able to show that you had a hundred youth. So documentation is critical. Your support documents will make or break 
your application. You have to substantiate what you're saying. If it was as easy, right, as writing and just submitting it without actually proving what it is that you're doing, we'd be in a whole different ballgame. Everybody would be getting funded, but it doesn't work that way. You have to substantiate your claim with evidence, and that means great administrative practices. That means that you have enrollment forms, that means that you have a system where somebody is continuously keeping track of the demographics. So what are demographics? Demographics are age, race, ethnicity, gender, zip code. So you want to be able to prove that you have a program that serves BIPOC and Latinx community members or youth ages 11 to 14 you have to compile these demographics, right? It's important because if that's the group that you're serving, you need these data sets. And so sometimes organizations do have a hard time with certain communities who might be ambivalent to providing information for services, but it's critical that you educate the communities that you serve that you're you're not going to distribute this data, you know, unlawfully. This is something that this data is regulated, right? But you've got to be able to provide these data sets to your donors so that it's almost like a system of checks and balances so that you are adhering to what you're saying you're doing in terms of service and your, your donors or your funders are holding you accountable to that, as well as if you're applying for new applications, to show that you're actually doing the work that you're doing. And so data collection, demographics, really important. From there, in terms of program management, we want to go into assessments. So assessments are a way for any business, and I mean this both regarding nonprofit and the grant world, as well as you know, for-profit ventures. If you're not continuously assessing your internal programs, how are you going to know if they're if the efficacy of your programming? And so in the grant world, we conduct something called pre and post assessments. So if you're working with a target population, right, and you want to assess if they're really hitting their metrics in terms of the curriculum that you're providing, and in, in this case, we're talking about arts education. So you're going to pre-assess right at the start of your program and see where they fall in terms of those metrics. And then you post assess about two weeks before the end of your program. If your program is effective, you should see those assessments go up. If your program is really not hitting the mark, you'll see that it's either maintained at the same you know, level or it's gone down. You never want your assessments to go lower than when you started. <laughs> that means that it, your program is ineffective and that your target population is not receiving the best service possible. And so it's important to assess not only your participants, but I also encourage organizations, nonprofit organizations to assess internal staff, assess your staff. And something that has worked well for me, and when I, I worked at the Adrian Arsh Center in a program called Ailey Camp Miami for three and a half years, and 
the Adrian Arsh Center is a wonderful organization in Miami. I learned a lot there in terms of my knowledge with, with grants and reporting. After every season, when the program ended, we would all sit together and really go through a comprehensive list of what worked that season and what we could do better. And it was, a, it was an informal assessment per se, but it worked because it was done collaboratively with the entire staff. So everybody had a stake at what they experienced, right? As we had people in different roles and it gave us a great way to just really chart the trajectory for the next season and where we needed to tweak right? And enhance certain things in the program. The next practical piece of advice that I'll say in terms of successful running successful programs and getting to the point where you can scale, right? And receiving more grants is compile anecdotal data, testimonial data, right? You want to get those videos. You want to get those images. I mean, donors really really love this. I cannot stress enough again, and there's certain things that I'm just going to really bullseye. They want to see where their money is going. <laughs> they want to see, they want to connect. A lot of the times the donor, you know, they're, they're not there every day. And so the only way that they really see how this funding is impacting the community is through collateral collateral, take the videos, do the images, you know, have the, have the kids or whoever is participating write testimonials about their experiences and share it. They love that. They want to see that. That is the whole point why they're behind this particular, you know, cause that they're funding. So that's critical. And then I would also stress, again, Find your local government organization or entity, right? So for example, in Miami-Dade County, and this is how now bringing you to that full circle, how we were able to go from 42 kids to now serving 350 kids and having an operational budget that literally tripled in three years. You've got to get connected to the resources, right? So in Miami-Dade County, the Miami-Dade County Department of Cultural Affairs does a lot of the funding for the nonprofits in the county. And so how do you how do you build that relationship? Well, guess what? These government funded programs, both at the city, state and federal level, they are all public programs. And so what you've got to do is find your you know, local cultural affairs department. Right. Or if you're looking at doing something that's outside of the art sector, you want to look at what government agency or department is responsible um, for that particular sector. And there are webinars, there are Zoom meetings, there are trainings for grantees where they walk you step by step by step on what the application process looks like, what is needed, right, for that particular, we call it the NOFO, the Notice of Funding Opportunity. And every NOFO is different because every opportunity is different. And so I would encourage if you're new to this, right, and let's say you're in the art sector, find your cultural affairs department in your city, 
go on to their website and they should have a tab for grants and then start, you know, getting familiar and attend, show up. When I was a young program administrator, right, and really just starting out, I can't tell you, it was so incredibly empowering to be able to connect with people who did this every day. And I, I have a special place in my heart for, for the women in Miami-Dade County. I call them my fairy godmothers because they literally took me under their wing. They saw that I was really passionate about this work, that I love this work, and they made an investment in me. And so they you know, sent me to training and they mentored me. So I was very, very lucky in that regard because not only was I getting the training that happened through the workshops, but also throughout the years. And I still connect with these relationships and they're still a very important and critical component of my career to have access. If I have a question, if there's something that I'm, you know, there's a challenge, you build this rapport and information, it, it's public knowledge and it's supposed to be shared. But if you don't ask, if you don't seek it, then you're in the dark. And so really empower yourself in that regard. And then last but not least, apply. You have to submit multiple applications. It's an ongoing process. We were only able to scale with Evolutionary Arts Life because it's been ongoing. There is no, oh, I'm taking a break and I'm tapping out. That doesn't exist. If you want to continue to get funded, you have to continue to apply and you have to continue to do the research, right? Sourcing those applications, developing those relationships with your ongoing funders, also super important, and then submitting as many applications as you can. And it gets easier. The good part is that once you put a couple of applications together, right? And let's say you've gotten funded, you can take those narratives and you can take what you've already worked on and use that. So for example, when you're first starting out, you want to make sure you've got your organizational mission statement, right? Your organizational history, if there is a history, your staff bios, all of these things that are being developed, you're going to use them again and again. And once you've submitted a couple of applications, if you're trying to submit for similar opportunities, it's a matter of really just tweaking things, right? to be able to fit that particular opportunity, but now you're not working from scratch. Now you have a template and you have a body of work that you can continuously draw from to submit those new applications. I would say this though, stay relevant, update your narratives. If you've got, if you just did something new that's notable, right? And for example, Evolutionary Arts Life actually got to perform with the FBI here in DC. We, we got that up on the narratives very quickly. That is something that's very notable and it's a prestigious opportunity to, to share, to have shared in that presentation. And so continue to update your narratives, but don't be afraid to, you know, take what you've got and recycle it as long as it's relevant. And it's, you know, you want to, you want to also, it's, this is really important to note as well, transparency 
and honesty in the grant world. And maybe we can cover that a little down the line, but it is something that I really, your ethics matter. What you're putting down on paper, it's like a contract and it matters. And what you, you must do what you say and say what you do. And if you don't, then you're going to deal with issues in terms of compliance or maybe losing the funding altogether. And that's the worst case scenario that you never want to do. And so ensuring that as you're going along, once you get funded, so you've got all these other pieces that you've set into motion, now you've applied, you have a successful application, you ensure compliance. Compliance is huge. I am a stickler on that. Sometimes it can seem that I am being somewhat, it's not like I'm a, a watchdog, but you know, I want my clients to be successful and to become continuously fundable. And so compliance is at the heart of that. If you say you're going to serve X amount, make sure you can serve X amount. If you say you're going to provide X, Y, Z, they will hold you to that. They will hold you accountable to that. And so sometimes people come into the grant world thinking, oh, well, free money. <laughs> and it, no, it's a contract. <laughs> and, and although, you know, you are given this, that's why there's the tax exemption, you're still held accountable. You still submit a 990 at the end of the year to illustrate where and how those funds were spent. And if you want to be funded and you want to continue to receive that funding, you're going to stay vigilant and stay compliant. And so I guess it's a lot, but I'm hoping that I've broken it down into practical steps for people. But I would say- your head. Yes. Now, here's a here's a, here's a question. There's a I imagine quite a few organizations serving or attempting to serve the same client base. So tell us, Agatha, how you different, how you're different from your competitors. I take a really personalized approach to understanding my client. And that means that I immerse myself into the work. And so a lot of grant writers I find can be removed. They're somewhat removed from the causes or the organizations that they're working with. And I think that's at a, a detriment to the client, being able to really sit with your client and take time to understand the core of their mission statement, to also understand what the strategic plan is as a whole. Where do you see yourself? We're not just talking about an application that we're going to submit tomorrow, but where do you see yourself as you, as you become uh, fundable per se, right? Or as you receive this award, there's a period where we call it the award management, right? And so how all of this is articulated through time really will determine whether you're going to be able to get additional funding or not. Are you going to be able to stay competitive? There are industry standards that are constantly changing, both on the legislative level and on the city level. I think that's something that is also really important for grant writers to stay on top of. And that's something that I bring to the table in terms of my advocacy, in terms of understanding regula regulations. And also, I would say for other grant writers out there, Americans for the Arts 
are a great resource if you want to understand what's happening in Congress. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this to my competitors, but I like to share information. And I think that, you know, it's, it's really important for people working in this sector to understand that it's not just at the city level, but rather what's going on in Congress directly affects how these different institutions are going to receive their funding. And that's something that I'm constantly keeping an eye on. And so what does that do? When an opportunity opens up, I'm first in the door. And that matters as well right? If you're coming in and you're applying, you know, weeks and weeks after something has been opened and you're now going up against hundreds of applicants who submitted it earlier, right? And I mean, I I sit as a panelist as well. So not only am I a writer, but I panel for a lot of different organizations, national organizations for the Culture Affairs Department in Miami, paneled for many years, Evaluating applications is a job within itself. It's intense. It is challenging. You're looking at, you know, many, many. So my last panel, I reviewed 53 applications and these applications include many different sections. And so if you're first in line and you submit a great application, you're going to have a greater chance sometimes at really getting pushed through. And it's about knowing, you know, these things, opportunities are coming down the pipeline, new grants are coming in and out. And so that's something that I'm really great at providing to my clients and staying relevant and staying current with with what's happening. I would also say, particularly regarding the art world and working with organizations that are art-based organizations, I've really done it all. I am an artist myself. I've been dancing since I was three. I don't perform anymore and I've retired my point shoes, but I was in the industry my whole life. And then from, you know, being on stage, moved to working off stage with some of the best nonprofits in the country. And that's something else that I bring to the table. I have been so fortunate and so grateful to work with the best for the best. And I bring that to my work every day. And just the experience of understanding the artist's needs or understanding how that particular group works and how the arts are a catalyst for change in communities, that gives me a type of insight that a grant writer who hasn't walked the path that I have had might not understand. And so really being able to look at the different facets of the industry allows me to have that flexibility to to understand the client in a multifaceted way. So what what do you what do you feel like is holding you back right now? What's in what's your major roadblock? I would say not having enough time in the day to write as many applications as I'd like to. That's something, you know, I've been thinking about really expanding and bringing some additional writers on the team to be able to serve more organizations 
And I would say that's probably the, the prevailing barrier to serving more people to just really, I, I don't like to, you know, like I said, I have a personalized approach. And so I want every client that I work with to really feel that and understand the quality of the work that's being produced. But if I could have a whole battalion of grant writers, I would definitely be able to, you know, grow and, and ways that I envision for the future. So how can our listeners get a hold of you, Agatha? You can get a hold of me by checking out my website. You can reach out through there, www.fluxus, that's F-L-U-X-U-S-H-A-U-S, dot org fluxushouse.org you can reach out to me via email agatha at fluxushouse.org and just connect how you can i'm also on facebook if you want to connect through facebook it's fluxus house 18 and you can find us on facebook and follow us there you can see all of the beautiful art and artists that we're working with all of our grantees but i would say the easiest way is to go on the website and fill the contact form okay beautiful thank you thank you thank you so tell me is there a question that i should have asked you or you were waiting for me to ask you that i didn't and then so tell us the question and then give us the answer to that unasked question. I would say you probably should have asked me why I have this background. <laughs> and I have this background because it is metaphorical to being a global citizen and to supporting and really championing for all different kinds of people who encompass our beautiful world. And I really wanted to emphasize that, that in everything that I do, at the core of what I do is acceptance of everyone, right? We all have our unique identities, which I believe makes us who we are. And we should celebrate these differences and we should support each other despite these differences and really come together um, as a community, as a nation to open up dialogue. I think right now is a turbulent time, you know, particularly dealing with, with culture wars when really we should be having these conversations without the violence and the aggression and the judgment of each other. We can have diverging beliefs, but still meet each other halfway and in common ground as fellow human beings. And so I, I would leave you with that, Bill. <laughs> That's nice. That's a nice close. And for those of you only on the podcast, you're, you're seeing her in front of a if you will, imagine yourself in a satellite seeing the globe in, well, the top third of the globe anyway. So it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful image. Thanks, Agatha. Appreciate it very much. Now, for everybody listening, in closing, let's focus on a single fact that our organizations do not become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner, founder, first having an amazing mindset to imagine a brilliant future, then second, settling on a 
specific strategy to get there, putting it together with an outstanding team and leveraging that team to, to reach that vision. So thanks for listening. Agatha, once again, thanks for sharing your beautiful time with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.